Last Tuesday, we had our first small group meeting for the year. Jill and I were leading a small group for the last five or so years. And so this year we branched out and began a new one. It's mainly for those who are either new to first family or new to the faith. And it's called First Step Small Group. We have a host, the Miguezes, they co-lead with us and host that as well. And so uh, we met for our first time last Tuesday. I hope that you're in a small group, by the way, and are plugging in and everyone's finding their way into a small group. They're just critically important here at First Family. So we were in ours last Tuesday. And in addition to being new, um, uh, as far as our whole group was kind of new to each other, we asked this question as we began. We shared a meal together and got to know each other. And then we said to each other, maybe share something that God is doing in your life that's kind of new. So we just kind of went with a whole new thing, you know, from start to finish, right? We're all new to each other. We're new to the church, at least they are. Some are new to the faith. And now we're sharing something that God's doing that's kind of new. And one of the gentlemen in our group, he said um, something that was really intriguing to me in light of what we're talking about this week. Uh, and I asked him later, I called him, I said, hey, can I get to share that with our church just briefly, generally? He said, sure. And he shared this comment. He said, that God is uh, once again putting him in a situation where he's got to navigate the landscape of forgiveness. I, I appreciate that kind of honesty and transparency. Just admitting that, you know what? Uh, forgiveness is really never easy. My guess is he's not alone. What do you think? That more of us then probably we want to admit are navigating um, forgiveness issues at times. And I think that we should navigate that. We should go after it, pursue it, chase it, because the truth is forgiveness is that oil on our relational wheels. And we just got to keep those wheels greased well with forgiveness. Or otherwise, they come to a screeching halt, don't they? This is true in your marriage. It's true in your friendships. It's true in your um, church life and your small group. Forgiveness really is the oil. Keeps the wheels turning correctly. So it's no wonder that Paul would write this singular verse to the Christians in Ephesus and to other folks who read it as well as the letter kind of circulated he writes this concluding verse to chapter four, which really calls us to forgiveness. Will you read it with me? It's Ephesians 4.32. You can locate it in your Bible. We'll be there today only. So go ahead and turn there, look at it. But I have it on the screen behind me. I want us to read this singular verse together as it clearly exhorts us to forgive one another, to navigate that landscape of forgiveness. So together, church, will you read it with me? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, in this verse, forgiveness is the operative word. It's not hard to spot. It's mentioned twice. It's what we are called to do. But I would maintain that forgiveness is the operative stance in this entire section. We've looked at this section for probably two or three weeks, beginning back in verse 17. If you're new today, you can go back and hear those messages, but we've been kind of tracking through this book 
And so between 17 and 24 and 25 to 32, the section of putting off and putting on of this new self that's created after God, I would say that the operative stance in this entire section is this posture of forgiveness. It, it, it's seen in the fact that we don't coddle unrighteous anger. We don't let the sun go down on our wrath. Uh, we don't uh, harbor bitterness that then escalates to blasphemy. In so many of the verses, what you find is that there's this relational um, a difference in us now that we don't sit and sour. We don't ferment in a bad attitude and bitterness. So we instead forgive. This is the posture of the new self. This is what it looks like to walk differently. And so I would say to you, yes, the operative word in this verse is to forgive, but the operative stance, the operative uh, posture that, that we take now that we're walking, not like our former selves, as verse 17 says, but like the new man is this, this constant pursuit, this lifestyle of forgiveness. It's one of the ways God's people are most distinct from the world. And so today I want to journey with you to adopting a posture of forgiveness as a normal way of life. And I want to do it by answering three questions from this verse that are implicitly asked and then also answered. What has God done? How did God do it? And why did God do it? Now, I need you to listen very carefully to my next statement. Because you may be thinking, oh, I thought we were going to be talking about how to live a life of forgiveness. And you're going to talk about what God did and how he did it and why he did it. Exactly. You know why? Because I don't want you to drum up fuel for forgiveness from just another human example or someone's three quick steps or ten tips. I want you to find the fuel for your constant posture of forgiveness from God's activity towards you. So we're going to look mainly at what God did towards us with the prayer that that is the best motivation for how we're to relate to each other. Are you with me? That's our aim today. Now, one more word about this verse that I want to share with you. And I want you to pray for me as I share this because I... This is a constant weight upon me as a pastor. I enjoy it. I welcome it. But it is the weekly and daily uh, pressure that I feel. I think every pastor should feel it, by the way. We should never get away from it. And that is this. You never want to undersell a text. And I use undersell in the right sense. I'm not trying to sell you the Bible. You know my point. But I don't ever want to undersell the text. I want it to say exactly what it means. But neither do I want the text to overreach in your life. I don't want to place weight on you that's not rightly there. So every text we look at, I'm always asking, are we above or below? Like, are we going too far or are we not going far enough? I think that's the preacher's responsibility. Let the weight of the text blanket your people. And then they deal with God on it, right? I mean, that's what I've got to do every week. That's what you've got to do. And in this text, I, I want you to know I'm, I'm not struggling but I'm very, um, I'm passionate that we not overreach this text and make it say what it's not meant to say. My sense of the author's intent is that he's dealing with 
we'll call it violations, offenses, wrongs done within the church family and how to, can I use the phrase, get over those, to deal with those and to move forward and stay unified, to walk as a new man. I don't know that he's aiming his comments here at every legal situation, every civil or financial situation. You see, I do believe that forgiveness can coexist with consequences. I think as humans, we take forgiveness as far as we can biblically, but there are times that even in our forgiveness of others, the law steps in and has legal consequences. Are you with me? Civil cases and situations where there are, 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 are uh, where, the, where the authorities, the government, the state, where they actually go to, on, to work on behalf of those who've been wronged. And so there may be personal forgiveness and there still may be civil, financial, or legal consequences. I, I, I don't know that Paul's aiming at trying to solve every one of those. There's a hundred situational specifics that you're thinking of right now and that you'll think of in the next 30 minutes and think, well, does this apply to that? I just wanna try to bring this text and put it in your lap and say that more than likely, what I sense in this text is Paul saying, within the body of Christ, when there's wrongs, injustices, offenses, violations, hurts, this is how you deal with them. You must pursue forgiveness. It doesn't mean that we don't forgive other situations. I think 1 Corinthians 5 leans into that, especially in the civil arena. And I would be pastorally uh, neglectful if I didn't say that in that passage, Paul actually says by the Holy Spirit's inspiration that he says, would you not rather be wronged than to take your um, uh, injustices to the world to have them solve them and to kind of lay out that laundry in front of the world? Can't you know, the church deal with its own issues? I think there's some truth in that, right? That we just don't, we don't want to just um, have a, a spirit of non-forgiveness. There are times you accept the wrong and you have to just absorb it. Yes, but in this text, in this case, I, I, I want to make sure it's clear. There are times that you can and you will forgive and there will still be consequences to the person who perhaps wronged you. That doesn't necessarily mean you didn't forgive them. I say that because I know that when I speak on this topic, like I said, a hundred situational specifics come up with people. Many of you who have gone through horrific offenses personal violations, tremendously painful, either moments or months or even years that you wonder, how do I reconcile this and forgive and still hold someone accountable? Those are very long and hard conversations. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? And I just want to make sure you hear my heart that there, there's, this is a big topic and I'm aiming at what I think this verse is aiming at. How do we continue to stay unified as a body when we sin against each other? Perhaps not in legal ways or civil ways, but in relational, spiritual ways. I think that's the proper aim that's not underselling or overreaching. We'll see if we get there, okay? Now, the three questions we're gonna answer to see what God has done and what he's done, how he's done it and why he's done it, the questions and answer in the verse. So first of all, what has God done? In the most precise terms, the text says God has forgiven you. Do you see it there? And I wanna stick with the word you here. 
It is a plural pronoun. So he's speaking to the church at large. He's saying, you who believe God's forgiven you. So I could say us. I could even say you all. Where I'm from, we would just make that one word. We'd say y'all. But I'm liking the word you because I think, interestingly, when you have a plural pronoun like you and I, I use it, you hear it and you know perhaps mentally, yes, he's speaking to all of us, but you feel it and you hear it kind of uh, individually. Like, oh, God forgave me. And I think that's healthy for us right now to hear this word that God has forgiven you. God's forgiven you. God's forgiven you. God's forgiven you. Those who believe, yes, collectively his church, but individually his people, God's forgiven you. Now, by definition, what that means is that God has graciously released you from a debt. So can we just talk factually for a moment? Because forgiveness is an emotional word and rightly so. It brings up wonderful feelings of, of celebration, of gratefulness. But let's just talk for a moment about the word, what it means definitionally. It means to be graciously forgiven of a debt. Let me bring you into some study tools that I use to kind of show you how the word is used in the New Testament. Here's a snapshot of, of the word uh, forgiveness or forgive. It's used 23 times in the New Testament. This word in Ephesians 4 is. There you see some mentions of it in 2 Corinthians, Colossians. And when it's used metaphorically, it simply means to forgive. And so we translate it as forgive. Out of the 23 times, nine times it's, it's said, uh, it's translated as forgive. There are two times, you'll see on the next picture, that it's uh, translated as cancel. And this is when it's used literally to talk about a, a king who canceled a debt. And so this is a story that was told and so literally, it means to cancel a debt. Metaphorically, it means to uh, forgive. The other half of the times the words used to describe how that debt's been canceled or how that forgiveness was extended and it's used to describe something done graciously, generously, or givingly. And so from those 23 uses, we understand the word to mean it's the gracious releasing of someone from a debt. It's the gracious generous canceling of a debt. Now the question is, what debt did we owe to God that he forgave us of? And the answer in a word is this, you owed a sin debt. Now, you're probably thinking about actions, but I would remind you, you actually owed God a sin debt by your very nature. You see, you were in debt, I was in debt from the day we were born to God. Because he's holy, I'm not. I was born in sin. We call that word depravity. We are sinners by nature. We're also sinners by action. So we're in debt to God twice. Are you with me? From the moment we're born and from the very first action of rebellion against God, we are in debt to him. He's holy, we're not. And there's this eternal predicament that we now find ourselves in, this massive chasm, this canyon that we can't bridge. How do unholy people relate to a holy God? How are we to enter into his presence? How do we make ourselves right with God? And we can't because we're unholy by nature and action and he's holy, intrinsically righteous and pure and just. 
So we have this, what I call an eternal predicament, don't we? What are we going to do? Well, we'll describe what was done in a moment about that, but it's that predicament, it's that imbalance, to use a financial term. It's that problem, that debt, that God has forgiven you of. Your unholiness, your imperfection, your sin, your inability to be holy. God's forgiven you of that. He's graciously, to all who believe, he's graciously canceled that. Now the question is, how did he do that? That's the second question. If that's what God has done, the text says God has forgiven you, graciously released you from a debt. And if our debt's a sin debt that we can't pay, how did God then do that? Let's go to our text. You see it there with me? God forgave us in Christ. Now that's just shorthand for all that Christ did on the cross. It's shorthand for the gospel. It's, it's just a, a quick way of saying that in Christ Jesus, God has found everything necessary to make sure that what you owed him is paid. Isn't that delightful? Isn't that beautiful? Now here, let me just explain this further. Because we're asking ourselves, how does God do that? And, and what's involved in these two words in Christ? There are three places in scripture that we have further information about how God forgives in Christ. Uh, I would say maybe three paramount ones. There's more than three, but three paramount ones. Uh, Romans 3, oh, about verses 21 through 25, 26. Philippians 2 and Ephesians 1 are three top ones. And they will explain to us more about what it means for God to forgive us in Christ. Watch this. For God to forgive us in Christ means that Christ had to, first of all, be put forward as a satisfactory payment, um, a substitute. And so the Bible says that God put Christ forward. Big words, propitiation. It means satisfaction, but God put Christ forward. Philippians 2 echoes this when it says that God sent his son. He took upon himself the form of a, of a man, even a servant. And then this servant, Philippians 2 says, became obedient to death. So God became a man, the eternal Christ, known as Jesus. He died for us. And then the Bible says that his death and the shedding of his blood was the reason God could forgive our sins. And so there's three phrases I want to show you that I think accompany these verses that will explain to you more about what it means for God to forgive in Christ. It was in Christ on the cross through his blood. And every single one of these are essential. God would not and could not forgive without them. Here's one reason why. Because God was in Christ fulfilling every bit of Old Testament prophecy about how people receive atonement. You remember the Old Testament? It was this annual atonement. There's even weekly and daily kind of sacrifices. And so God would see them offer a lamb or he would see them offer a, a grain offering or, or some other kind of sin offering. But because that wasn't a perfect offering, it wasn't holy, it wasn't uh, God stepping in into our eternal predicament and solving our problem eternally, it only lasted temporarily. Day of atonement was once a year. And so they had to keep repeating this. But when God sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, a holy God was dying for unholy man in unholy man's place. And a holy God can offer God the Father a perfect sacrifice. And so it is eternally sufficient. 
In fact, you can say it like this to be theologically accurate. God paid the debt through himself. It was the second person of the Trinity, the son, who paid our debt and satisfied God's wrath against our sin debt. But it's one God in three persons. So we know that God took care of our debt through God. <laughs> this is why it's, it's so humbling and um, it's just mind bending to think about what God did for us on the cross. In Jesus, God met every bit of sin's demand. He covered the canyon, he paid the debt, he bridged the gap. He solved your eternal predicament because Jesus was God and holy. And so as Paul would say to Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so because Jesus died in your place as God, the perfect sacrifice, eternally sufficient, God can now look upon what Jesus paid and declare all who believe righteous. He gives you credit that you didn't actually earn or deserve. He's releasing you from what you owe because of what Jesus paid for you. Make sense, church? That's the gospel. That's what's going on with the words, God forgave you in Christ. And we're so thankful for this. It really is just summarized well in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says this, God made Jesus to be sin for us so that we would know the righteousness of God. You see the great exchange happening there, the trade? So I share that with you because I, I wanted you to have historical time and space perspective for this next statement. Just listen very carefully. When we see that and we understand that and we, we realize that that's an actual historical supernatural event that occurred, we realize that God didn't just wish our sin away. Every eye listening, every eye watching, every ear listening, I mean, everything about you, just watch it, listen very carefully. Because sometimes I think in church, we unintentionally and accidentally think that God just in heaven one day just kind of took the, the eraser of the whiteboard and said, well, we'll just act like man, man never sinned. And whoosh. I mean, I'm God, I can do what I want. God didn't do that. God didn't pretend it never happened. God didn't just kind of overlook it. God actually paid the price for your sin in the person of his son, in physical time and space reality at the cross. And Jesus actually shed his blood and physically died to cover the debt you owed to God, which says to me something very important about forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is someone else absorbing the pain so that there can be a release, a gracious release from your debt. You follow me? You see, if you have any kind of forgiveness without someone absorbing the pain, you have mythical forgiveness. But when you actually realize forgiveness only occurs when someone absorbs the pain of the wrong, you have biblical forgiveness. It's the basis for releasing them from the debt. You don't just put pain out there in no man's land and say, well, you know what? We'll act like it never occurred. Someone has to absorb the pain and release the one who caused the pain. That's biblical forgiveness. And that's what God did for you in Christ. He caused his son to suffer the pain of your sin, to pay that penalty. 
And then he gives that credit to you and he releases you from what you owe him. (laughs) No wonder Psalm 32 says, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. Amen, church. So this is what God has done. And this is how he did it. And the question then comes, why did God do this? And the answer is because of his love. And you're going to find this essentially implied in the text. Will you look at it with me? Notice how the text starts. It says, be kind, to be tenderhearted. And then he says, to forgive each other. So the, the text seems to say that because of what we know exists in here, we have tenderness and kindness, then we have an external action out here. We do something because of what we have inside of us. And, and then he says, as God forgave you in Christ. And I think the implication is God operated in forgiveness of us because of what he is and who he is inwardly. His character motivated his conduct. God is loving, kind, and tenderhearted. You say, Todd, how did you get to the word loving? It's not in this verse. Oh, but it's in the very next verse. In fact, we'll cover this next week, but just look at verse one of chapter five for a moment. Look what it says, that we are now to... uh, imitate God and walk in love. You see that? So I think what Paul's doing here is this. He's realizing there's kindness and tenderheartedness that really causes forgiveness to surface and then be put into action. And he summarizes that by saying, this is what it means to walk in love. This is how God loved you. He's kind, he's tenderhearted, he's gentle. And so he forgave you. That's love. Walk like God in love. So it's not a stretch textually or theologically to make sure you understand something. God forgives because of his love. And Paul even asserted this in a beautiful way just a few chapters earlier, Ephesians 2, 4. In fact, this is the only time Paul puts the word great with the word love in his epistles. Listen to what it says. God being rich in mercy Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He's describing God's rich mercy and great love. And he says, out of that, God has forgiven you. He's brought you from death to life. Isn't that great, church? So why does God forgive? God forgives because he loves. Uh, What's the first verse many of us learned? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here's Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, uh, Christ died for us. So these actions that were necessary for God to forgive us, they're rooted in God's love of us. And the point is, this is why then we love. This is why we forgive, because God loves and God forgives. You know, it's interesting how there's a constant connection between God's forgiveness and our forgiveness, or God's love and our love. It's it's a consistent connection throughout the New Testament. Here's one of them. It's a startling sentence by Jesus. It's stunning. He says, if you forgive, this is Matthew 6, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. And if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Now, when we hear that, we sometimes have our minds and we run to like this 
tit for tat spreadsheet, don't we? Like, okay, I'm gonna track. If I forgave four times, that means God will forgive me four times. We kind of chart them mentally. We kind of keep tabs. And that's not the point of that verse. Jesus is not saying, hey, you know, keep tabs and I'll owe you as many times you forgive other people. That's not the point. The point he's making is that forgiveness flows from being forgiven. And that if you aren't forgiving, it's a sign you've not been forgiven. I told you it was stunning, startling. That one of the signs that we've really not been forgiven is when we don't forgive. This is a paramount issue. No wonder Paul would raise it and conclude this section in many ways with this posture to the church that, you know what, just lean into a lifestyle of forgiveness. This is how we should imitate God. Now, I must add that there's an additional reason that we forgive. It does flow out of a love from God and a love for God, but it is a little different aspect, but I, I feel like it's important that I lay this on you. You need to hear this. Because we love God so much, we're thankful for how he's forgiven us, we then don't love, or we can say, we hate the enemy of God, Satan. And did you know that unforgiveness is one of Satan's devices? It's one of his schemes. Now, I can prove that from this text here in Ephesians 4, where at least a couple of times we're told to make sure that we don't you know, coddle unrighteous anger because it gives the devil a place to operate. I think that's verse 26, 27, Ephesians 4. Uh, also later he says, don't let these sins that escalate, you know, bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, and so forth. Uh, don't harbor those, but instead forgive. So the sense is, don't uh, let resentment sour in you. Forgive each other. But I would also take you to 2 Corinthians 2, where there it explicitly says that when a church refuses to forgive, you give Satan an advantage. Is everyone listening? In other words, uh, the word the ESV uses is you're outwitted by Satan. And so when we sit in unforgiveness, we're giving Satan a leg up. We're giving him an edge. So out of love for God, we don't want that in the church collectively or individually. And so we must realize this is a reason to forgive. Understand church, and that, that passage in 2 Corinthians 2 is a congregational passage. It's speaking of corporate forgiveness when there's been corporate discipline and then repentance. So I don't wanna uh, manipulate it to, to mean something just individually, but I think it does help us see how Satan operates. Wouldn't you agree? that he operates one of his schemes. In fact, the verse says that, that we're not ignorant of his devices. One of Satan's techniques is to either get the church collectively or you individually to kind of sit and soak in an unforgiving spirit. And instead of graciously absorbing the pain and then extending a release to the person, you sit and you contemplate all the things they actually owe you how if you could, you'd get them back in this way and that way. And you go from bitterness to clamor to blasphemy and malice is uh, just intersecting with every bit of that. 
and the church you're part of continues to just struggle and limp because you're one of probably many like that who are holding on to offenses. While you say you enjoy all that God's forgiven you for, you can't extend a bit of that to someone else. Does that sound spiritually illogical to you? It should. Does that sound spiritually reprehensible to you? It should. No wonder churches are malnourished, ineffective, and powerless because we've, we've given Satan an advantage through unforgiveness. So why should you forgive? Yes, because God forgives out of his love for us, so we forgive out of our love for God and for each other, but also we love God so much we don't want his enemy to get a, an advantage. So all this combined, these three questions and these three answers, just right from our text, what has God done? He's forgiven you. How? In Christ. And why? Because he's kind and tenderhearted and loving. That's the foundation and basis for why we are now to forgive each other in kindness and tenderheartedness. So I just say it to you like this. Here's the call to you today. Out of love from God and for God. Will you forgive others by absorbing the pain and releasing them graciously? That's your take-home exhortation today. There's the truth. And notice what I'm not saying to you. I'm not saying that you should just look at the wrong done to you and say, well, I'll just kind of pretend it didn't happen. I'll just put it over here in this category and I'll not worry about it. They won't worry about it. That's not biblical forgiveness. That's mythical forgiveness. I'm actually asking you to do something un, uh, indescribably difficult. Absorb the pain. I was wronged. It hurt. It shouldn't have happened, but it did. But I'll absorb that. And to the one who did the wrong, I won't extract anything from you. I release you. That's indescribably difficult, but it's undeniably Christ-like. For what did Jesus say from the cross to those who nailed his hands and feet? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I can sense even in this moment, the Holy Spirit pressing a finger on a real sensitive spot in many of your lives. He's shining a light. We're in a dark corner right now. You've been holding something in, harboring. That's a temptation for all of us. There's not a single person in this room from this end to this end, from there to here that hasn't experienced hurt within the body of Christ. There's not a single person exempt from that. The question is, what are you gonna do with it? Are you gonna harbor it and give the devil a place to operate? Or will you follow the exhortation of Ephesians 4 which describes the posture of those who are walking differently. And will you, in kindness and tenderheartedness, forgive and graciously release them from the debt? You see, the man in my small group wasn't alone, was he? We are probably all, to some degree, navigating the landscape of forgiveness. You know, we're about to approach the Lord's table. We do this most weeks. Have you ever thought about 
approaching the Lord's table with unforgiveness, like speaking of spiritually illogical, we're approaching and entering into the place that is the apex of forgiveness with unforgiveness. <laughs> that shouldn't happen, church. So I call you instead to this posture of forgiveness. Yes, that's undeniably difficult, but so explicitly Christ-like that it says to the world, wow, you're not walking like you used to walk. You're walking differently, holily. You're walking with Christ in forgiveness. And so to help you continue towards this goal and this aim, I'm just gonna lean on God's word again. That's our only hope, God's word and God's spirit in God's people. My prayer is that this verse will motivate you to action. So will you stand with me? And can we once again, just as we did when we opened, can we together say with passion and conviction, Ephesians 4, 32 together. Church, join me, would you? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.